hello and welcome to this special edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. Today we are looking at the options available to investors seeking to build a durable income from their equity portfolio. This podcast is sponsored by Artemis and is part of our Despatches series. The reality of high inflation and the prospect of higher interest rates mean now is a difficult time to be an income investor. Joining me today to unpack the dilemma a little bit more are Jakob de Tuschlek, who runs the Artemis Global Income Fund and other mandates, and Jake Muller, Senior Investment Consultant at Square Mile. Thank you both for joining me. Uh, Jakob, if we start with you for the first question, how can one understand, given the very high levels of uncertainty, whether the headline yield offered on some funds or, or in your case, I guess, equities are, are durable and reliable? It's a good question and uh, you have to be sceptical because dividends uh, are there until they're not. Mm-hmm. And we saw that during Corona, we've seen that historically. What we tend to look at is how strong is the balance sheet of a company? How high is the payout ratio to begin with? How high is the dividend yield? And ultimately, put ourselves in the shoes of the board and the management and say, who has a claim on the excess cash? Mm-hmm. And you don't want to be the last in, in, in line. Uh, and therefore, when we have uh, a decision to make on the dividend, often you want to go with a slightly lower dividend but have a higher level of security and and also some prospective growth because income without growth, especially at times like these where you have inflation, uh, um, is not is, is is not really what you want. You want income that can grow in line or quicker than inflation. Okay, thank you. And uh, Jake, from from your point of view, looking at the at the funds side, I guess. Yeah, I think there is durability there, and and. I think active fund managers like Jacob um, can take some heart in the fact that if you go back to 2000, um, about less than 30% of of the MSCI world had a yield of of 2%, the companies in the MSCI world, that's closer to 50% today. There's less reliance on the US. The US is a smaller component. The emerging market companies are beginning to develop a, a dividend, a better dividend discipline. Uh, mid caps and smaller companies are also uh, learning that in order to reward share, their share price, they can uh, learn dis- a dividend discipline. So this gives active fund managers like Jacob a bigger pool to fish in. Um, it means they're not necessarily restricted to large pharma or large tobaccos or large financials. And uh, it does give them the scope to find dividends which are durable um, in, in situations where markets are a bit more volatile. Thank you, and we'll we'll stay with you for the for the next question, Jake. Um, if one did wish to have a more defensive tilt to their equity income allocation, what does that look like in the in the current climate? What 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 is defensive asset in a time of perhaps stagflation? Well, the things that we look for with our fund managers uh, when we talk about being defence is, is is two things, either a value bias or quality. Uh, and in this sort of market, we're probably looking to our fund managers, especially our dividend uh, growers, to, to have a quality bias. You know, invest in companies which aren't exposed on their balance sheet so much, that have, as Jacob alluded to, a good discipline with their cash. 
uh, and have a management and a proposition that gives them some sort of pricing power in a market such as this. So they're the, the key things to look for, I think, when, when there is increased volatility and markets are, are struggling a little bit. Thank you. And Jakob, as, a, as an equity uh, investor, if, if you do want to reduce the, the beta or, or, or just be a little bit more uh, defensive, what does that look like? How do you think about that in, in the world that we have right now? There's a number of things to say. We're obviously going through a bit of a paradigm shift in markets now. So what used to be risk might not be as risky going forward. And what used to be safe <laughs> over the last three, four years might might not be as safe going forward. So beta, um, we love to talk about beta, but beta is volatile in the sense that, <laughs> uh, you know, there are things that go from being utility-like to being more growth-like and, and vice versa. So the first comment I'd make is that we've had 10 years of very low rates where leverage has not been a problem. Companies could lever up and every time they relevered, they did it at a lower rate. So it's almost like an equity release on, on your mortgage if you, if you do that. Well, uh, we see both in our personal finances that mortgage rates are going up and next time you've got to take out a mortgage, you'll be at a higher rate than last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not dissimilar for a CFO. Next time the CFO issues a high-yield bond or takes in a, a bank loan, it will be at a higher risk-free rate and a higher spread on top of that. Okay. So um, from an equity point of view, as an equity holder, you get what's left once <laughs> employees and, and bondholders have been paid, etc. So when rates go up, that can increase the beta of an equity. And and therefore, you know, as as, as Jake said, looking at the leverage of a company is, is probably a, a good place to start. And there are lots of very defensive businesses out there, but if they're levered to the eyeballs, then the equity will be volatile. And in our world, volatility is sort of synonymous with risk. Um, so that's one thing we're looking at is maybe taking down the leverage of of, of the underlying assets in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Of course, that doesn't count for all. Um, infrastructure, for example, with very long contracts. If you have a bridge or a concession that's 100 year long, you can carry more debt. So it's it again, uh, you have to be a bit, um, uh, the, the, you have to be a little bit specific about it. But I think that consumer stocks, for example, with a lot of debt, that's what we don't see as a defensive asset. <laughs> so um, what we do look at is if we assume we're going into a period of stagflation, because that's the consensus, it might not happen, but let's mm-hmm. just assume we're in a sort of pre-recession environment now and inflation is not going to come down for the next 18 months, uh, sort of below 3%, then asset-backed uh, companies is, is one area we like. Um, so it's either REITs or infrastructure, as I mentioned, okay. where you got some real assets with some inflation-linked pricing power behind. So the ultimate kind of safe asset in that environment would be something akin to a inflation-hedged bond. Good income dynamics there too. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 again, the risks, of course, because nothing is <laughs> nothing is simple these days. But of course, the risk is: do you get a windfall tax? Do we have governments come and say your concession for ninety nine years? We're going to cut that down, or so so governments sort of meddling in in highly regulated sectors is usually the, the other side of the coin. But I think as a whole, we like companies that have some kind of back backing in 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 either existing infrastructure or factories or something where the where where someone who wanted to replicate that out of nothing would have to pay a lot of money. Sure. So essentially physical backing, which is very different than than what we've seen for the past decade, where physical backing was was less key and it was always about having backing in in, in the metaverse, so to speak. Okay. Um and I guess many um 
equity investors have had a, a bit of a dilemma for most of the past decade where you could either buy something that had a, a, a dividend and no growth or buy something like a, a tech stock which had lots of um, growth but no, no dividend. We may be entering a world where you can have both again but inflation is is in there and you know the definition of an attractive level of of yield is probably influenced by what the prevailing inflation rate is now as an equity income guy how how does inflation play into your your consideration when you're constructing a portfolio so i think what inflation does fundamentally does a lot to the economy and to the policy response. But if we think about it in a pure spreadsheet sense, when you look at a company, it increases the discount rate on future cash flows. <laughs> and when you have long-duration assets, and they've done very well over the last decade, and you've got interest rates around zero, which means your discount rate is very low, $100 in the future is worth $100 today. You don't mind buying these companies that are growing very quickly, but only delivering cash flows back to you sometime in the future. Mm-hmm. You you don't have a loss of opportunity cost. The opportunity mm-hmm. cost is, is low. Yeah. As inflation is going up, spreads are widening, uh, and, and the cost of money is going up, broadly speaking, and you've got a liquidity suck on the economy, whether it's from quantitative tightening or just uh, a higher oil prices, higher taxes. Suddenly, the cost of money goes up, and income stocks are, in general, what I would call short-duration assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't grow a lot, so a lot of the value, again, to stay in the in the spreadsheet world, a lot of the value of your, your investments sit maybe in the first decade, not in the terminal value. Okay. And that's essentially the shift that we are observing in markets is that short-duration assets, as you pointed out, income but no growth, was not in vogue when, when, when money was free. When money has a price... Mm-hmm getting a 5% yield, and again, importantly, that can grow in line with inflation. Suddenly you have a, a real income where you're not getting the, the, the negative impact as much from, from inflation. And of course, if that happens in an environment where these long-duration assets depreciate in value as well, of course, your relative total return then looks yeah. much more attractive. Sure. Uh, does it mean that, that the, the level of... Uh the minimum level or the floor level of of, uh, yield today is higher for you than it would have been, you know. So does there have to be a minimum of four or three now, whereas there didn't have to be before? I I think I would say no, because that's dangerous. What you you don't want are companies that sort of extend to pretend in a way, you know, that that that, that increase the dividend and then it it's not sustainable. I think it's less about the level of the yield that's affected by inflation, but what is affected by inflation is the the, the future growth rate. And then you have to look at the dividend policies. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies, if they have fixed payout ratios, i.e. the dividend that they pay is just a percentage of their profits, sure. yeah. you're going to end up analyzing the profit forecast and the profit outlook because the dividend is a is a sort of residual of that. Sure. And um, what it might do is it might change the balance between share buybacks and dividends. Okay. How do companies return the excess cash? Mm-hmm. That's where the d- debate becomes a bit more 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 um, f- granular. I would say. Thank you, um, and Jake. I know at, at Square Mile, um, y- you guys you know, think about this question a lot and put together portfolios which which uh, advisors then then access. Um, and how does inflation play a role in, in that thinking? It does. It, 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 it feeds through to the the way that the fund managers position their portfolios. So a, a number of the, I cover global equity income, a number of the fund managers that I speak to, and, and Jacob's one of our um, approved funds, um, is 
there are three components that the fund managers are talking about now is the pricing power of the companies they're investing in. Now, you know, I don't know whether Adidas or Nike have better pricing power. Perhaps neither of them have enough. But, you know, a lot of the fund managers are talking about off-price retailers like TK Maxx, where they have the ability to diversify their pricing power. Um, Companies with low capital intensity, so companies that aren't reliant on input costs that are suddenly going up, (laughs) and, and strong balance sheets, which we've already touched on before. But companies that have got good levels of goodwill and intangibles and are able to write that off on their depreciation schedules over time gives them a long-term ability to, to um, st- steady the ship when inflation picks up. So those sorts of positionings are now becoming a little bit more clear. Um, you know, the avoidance of cyclicals that, that um, might, might suffer as a result of inflationary shocks uh, and, and slightly more defensive um, investments are what we're seeing. So these are the sorts of positionings that um, our fund managers are talking to us about at the moment. Thank you. And, and Jake, you know, that's, um, that's interesting because maybe 20 years ago or, or 30 years ago, if someone was putting together an equity income portfolio, certainly around the UK market, uh, one would have thought, you know, I'd put in one or two banks, yep. one, one or two oil companies, one or two miners, the supermarkets, nobody would have considered that excessively risky. But now maybe all of those areas, one could argue, whatever about the yield today, look structurally challenged. Are you hearing from managers that they want to own fewer of those for the for the long term, that they're having to look a little bit more off the prairie than they than they did um, at the start of their careers? Yeah, I, I think there is some truth to that, and Jakob can elaborate. Um, there's certainly, you know, ESG considerations have changed the way investors think about large tobacco. So unless a tobacco company is able to diversify its business, you know, banks haven't responded as well as they could have or should have done or as, it, as you'd expect because of the increase in interest rate pressures. Um, so, you know, what's going to happen with banks? Uh, a lot of fund managers aren't comfortable with their balance sheets, so can't see through them, uh, that sort of thing. You know, and then you've got low quality um, payers like utilities, which used to be a go-to, but they don't grow at all. So you, there's a whole world now that's opening up. And like the point I, I made at the, at the start about New, new companies that are smaller are learning the importance of a dividend discipline are actually improving the pool that fund managers like Jakob can fish in uh, to get dividends that take them outside of tobacco, take them outside of financials and, and uh, you know, consumer staples that they, they may not have the time to research. So I, I think it's a great opportunity for active fund managers in this type of environment. Thank you. And Jakob, I mean, as long as I'm doing this job I've been uh, hearing about how you know banks will do well next week <laughs> and they always seem to find a reason not to do well next week whether it's getting fined for things or, or interest rates being low etc indeed uh, you know retailers we're all, we're all aware of the, the challenge there you just have to look at the, the high street oil mm-hmm. companies are certainly in vogue now but you mentioned earlier about politicians who might um, who might put on windfall taxes um, so are those areas is there a structural question there or is it just they've always been a cyclical play and there'll be a cyclical play next time as well? Um, I think, well, two points I would make to that uh, and just uh, continue from what Jake said is that, first of all, what we're seeing globally is that um, government bond deals are very, very different. You know, there are countries in South America where rates are 10%, uh, Mexico, Brazil. We've seen rate hikes in in, in the Czech Republic, uh, 
Sweden has started hiking, New Zealand, etc. And then there are countries like the UK where we're seeing much less of rate hike for domestic reasons, policy reasons, etc., and, and, and very, very big, uh, large negative real rates. And I think running a global income fund, um, dividends are not equal in mm-hmm. the sense that there's a big difference getting a 3% yield from a country doing their business in, in from a company doing their business in country X where the, the real rate is very high mm-hmm. versus very low. So we tend to look at, I would say, what is the dividend yield versus the risk-free rate of that currency right. that they are earning? And of course, even if, you know, even if it's just for 80% of their revenues coming in that currency, you sort of think you want to have a spread there. Um, so that's one comment I'd make is that, that we have to think about currencies in a world mm-hmm. where you have inflation. Okay. Because that was the lesson in the 70s and 80s is that currency volatility can be much higher than what we've seen recently. So again, the dividend yields that we look at, we will have to have a higher yield in emerging markets where rates are very high versus other countries in Europe where the risk-free rate is low. You might get a 400 basis point spread to the risk-free. And if you consider that being a, a sort of tantamount to, a, to, a higher, to an investment-grade bond, then that's enough. Okay. It's sort of a type of a, of a risk premium. So, so one comment I'd make is that it, it's not always just about sectors, but also what currency do you get that dividend in? And when it comes to banks, you're right, banks have been sort of the, the, the secret of the last decade has been just be underweight banks and you'd probably do okay. Um, I would say again here, country selection becomes key because you can buy a bank in an economy that is maybe commodity-backed. Mm-hmm. So their economy is actually benefiting from high oil prices and high commodity prices where the consumer is strong, where employment is fine. And there is a sort of slightly less inverted yield curve than we're seeing in some, some Western economies. Then banks are probably fine. But I agree that if, if what we're seeing now in the economy is sort of a slow uh, walk into stagflation because central banks have to react to higher rates and they have to slow down the economy. And because inflation is supply side driven, that's the problem this time mm-hmm. around, that they can hike rates as much as they want. It's not going to create more oil. It's not going to create mm-hmm. more container shipping capacity. So if we think that the inflation we're seeing now is maybe only one quarter demand side driven and three quarter supply side driven, that is very stagflationary. And in that environment, you would think that banks might not be the best play uh, because obviously if we get recession, job losses, uh, house prices falling, um, that's not normally an environment that, that you want to be long banks. But but we, we're sort of underweight banks in the portfolio, but what we tell clients is the country selection on on picking your financials is absolutely key. We see a lot of fund managers, fund manager companies are being preferred at the moment to, to banks with, with a lot of uh, fund managers themselves. So you, you see, um, you know, they, they seem to be having a better return on on capital than the banks themselves. So okay, that's that, that's um, that's interesting because I mean, obviously, fund fund houses are very high, very high beta, very sensitive to stock market performance. But I guess. Uh, lots of people had had AUMs go up for a decade because markets went up for a, for a decade. But but it is it is um, interesting. I mean, Jakob might might feel too conflicted to comment on that, but he can <laughs> if he wants. I mean, Artemis is not listed, so um... look. I think again, we have in the past had exposure to private equity fund management houses. Mm-hmm. We've had exposure to uh, fund managers with a lot of exposure to passive ETFs. Mm-hmm. Um, there are fund managers and there are fund managers. And, and if we are going into an environment um, where volatility is high, then you know there is a view out there that, in theory, that should be better for active than passive. 
But again, who knows? Uh, I would say that what I do like within financials are, I mean, we have a fair amount of, of, of residential real estate. Mm-hmm. And what is absolutely key here is, and that's what we ask the management teams all the time, is can you raise your rents when a tenant move out, moves out? Can you raise the rent in line with inflation? Yeah. And as long as you have that, then, then you have that kind of inflation protection, which we all are sort of obsessed about right now. Um, and there are still areas of the economy where you don't have enough capacity. I mean, that's why we have this inflation, is that there isn't enough housing sort of across the, the board, both at, at the high end in certain urban areas, but also at the, the lower end. And therefore, I think just hiking rates, what that will do is that will slow the economy, but it's not necessarily going to create a massive capex cycle. So again, to, to what Jake was talking about before, it is about finding those sectors that have seen underinvestment for a decade or two. And you mentioned mining and oil. Yes, they are very cyclical sectors, when the economy goes into recession, they tend to do badly. Yeah. But we have seen a decade where these companies have, mm-hmm. putting ESG aside for a second, where these companies have spent a lot of time fixing the balance sheets, not you know drilling holes everywhere, not digging holes everywhere, and fixing uh, 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 their, their dividend policies. And, 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 and I think from that point of view, these companies have the benefit that with underinvestment for a decade or two, there just isn't enough supply of whatever we need in a world that still has, uh, you know, demographics. We still have more people coming out every year. Thank you. Um, and Jakob, that my last question really, I suppose, was around, was around the large cap, well-known um, sectors. But to what extent do small and mid cap um, equities play play a role in your in your thinking. Um, again, you know it, they're not areas of the market that are historically viewed as um, as income plays. But is there increasingly more more opportunity there? Or if we think broadly speaking, that the last ten years have been twenty years, but especially the last ten years post the financial crisis, have been about globalization uh, yeah. platforms linking things together. That has been very um, positive environment for, for large caps, global mega caps. Sure. Um, if we are going into an environment where globalization slows down or rolls back, where country selection is key, where you want to be important to your local government or your national government, mid caps, small caps, might have an easier time navigating. Of course, I'm generalizing here. Not all, uh, not all global companies will have 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 problems, and and in some sectors, being global is an absolute must. But if we are going into an environment where government interference is going to go up, where you're going to have tariffs, you're going to have all kinds of change of the 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 corporate landscape, then mid caps become interesting because they mm-hmm. serve a purpose. And they might go in dialogue with the various stakeholders. So we've definitely, uh, in the portfolio, sort of thought about how can we be positioned for the opposite of what has done well for the past decade and maybe have the beneficiaries of of rollback of globalization. Thank you. Um, Jake, at at Square Mile, when you're uh, putting portfolios together, on the income side, do do you see a role for uh, mid funds or or just... General income funds that have more of a skew towards mid. 
I, I definitely think there is a place for small and mid-cap companies. Uh, the d- discipline is getting better. But also, um, I, I think the valuations come into it as well, because if you want to pay for a dividend aristocrat, they're probably yeah. quite pricey. I don't know, 23, 25 times on, on that index at the moment. Um, you know, you can get... It's, I, I think the trade-off, and you've got to be careful with, with using dividend yield as the sole criteria, because if you consider growth, a lot of these smaller mid-caps are coming off a low yield base, to be fair, but they are able, by virtue of that, able to grow their dividend at a better level each year. And if that's what you're looking for, I certainly think there are some opportunities there. And of course, smaller mid-companies become larger companies in due course. So if they're able to keep that discipline from an early part of their business cycle... Um, they, they should be able to do well. So definitely, um, again, I think you need a good active fund manager who can navigate those waters because uh, there's a bit more to it um, as you go down the, spe- the cap spectrum. Thank you for that, uh, Jake. And thank you to Jakob de Tuschlek, who runs the Artemis Global Income Fund, and Jake Muller, Senior Investment Consultant at Square Mile, for joining me today. And thank you all for listening. And please do remember to tune in to the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. 